Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this week's Tej Talks episode. So, a uh, quick reminder, my ultimate podcast master guide is out right now. Go to tej-talks.com slash ebooks to have a look. If you ever want to start your own podcast and you don't know what you're doing, where to edit, where to upload it from, what it means, how to build a brand around it, then this is the guide for you. Have a look, tej-talks.com slash ebooks. Now, on today's show, we have Scott Baker Properties, which consists of Niall and Matt. Really interesting duo. Now, they have 83 rental units, aka 83 HMO rooms, that they've built up over three years. Now, over the past three to four years, they've raised over £1 million in angel and JV finance. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? You know, every year that's, what, £332,000? It's a good amount, eh? And what we talk about today is HMOs, how to achieve a higher room rate in their area the average room rate is 550 they're achieving 650 we talk about a 22 bed hmo that has an end valuation of at least 1.1 million we talk about what they call next level hmos their project 96 which is adding 96 more rental units to the portfolio this year alone and how you can supply your demand and because of that how hmos do have a future and can last a long time if you do things in the right way. So if you're considering HMOs, you've got a few HMOs, then this is the podcast for you. Please leave a review if you haven't already. Thanks. Matt and Niall of Scott Baker Properties, welcome to the Tedge Talks podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. No, it's very interesting. I read you, I think I read your article in YPN magazine and I thought, hmm, this is really interesting. I, I folded the page and I came back to it like a week later and was like, I want these two on the podcast because your story just sounded so awesome. So I guess before we get into, you know, what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing, what were you both doing before you got into property? Um, okay. Uh, well, I'm Niall. I'm one half of Scott Baker Properties. <laughs> um, before I got into property, I was working in finance. Um, I've got, I've had, um, I've worn a few different career hats uh, in the past, but that was the most recent one. Uh, so I was working as a self-employed contractor um, in, in London. Um, before I, before I became a property investor, um, and got it was a, a quite a decent job, but it was um, wasn't something I wanted to do long term. Um, and when I started looking at different ways of generating income and being a little bit more self sufficient rather than relying on a, a boss or a day job to provide the income, that's when I came across property investment, and the rest, as they say, is history. And uh, I suppose mine's story is slightly different to Niles. Uh, I'm Matt Baker, uh, the other half of Scott Baker Properties, <laughs> and uh, my story is a little bit, um, actually, I started out in music, I'm a musician, so since, I've been playing the piano since about the age of five or six now, and um, I studied music at university, uh, after uni, became a freelance musician, um, did lots of teaching, working with bands, session musicians, uh, etc., so lots of touring and, and writing and recording, it was lots of lots of fun really and kind of realized quite quickly maybe about you know 10 years after being a 
freelance musician, um, that it wasn't really going to cut it in terms of long-term wealth, long-term income. So I uh, came across property investing, uh, did a course, as a lot of us do, uh, to, to kind of get that initial kind of spark about property. And uh, then, yeah, as Nar said, the rest is history. Um, and we met shortly after that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how did you both meet? Yeah, so uh, as much as kind of briefly referred to, we, we it was about four years ago, four and a half years ago, that we both um, started investigating uh, property as as a vehicle for generating income um, uh, and a business for ourselves. Um, we didn't know each other before that, but we were both part of the same training organization, um, and we met on the training courses basically. Um, we but we. We didn't start working together initially. Uh, we had, we built up a friendship and we knew each other um, for about at least a year, maybe a little bit more, uh, before we decided that um, we would actually we were quite suited to each other as to working together. Um, so we we had both bought properties on our own right, um, but we discovered that it was quite a slow process um, and. I was we were both working full time in different jobs at that point as well, so it's quite. Can be quite lonely. It can be quite stressful trying to do it all by yourself. Um, so when I found a deal that um, I thought Matt would be interested in, uh, approached him about the deal, and we discovered very quickly then that we did, that we could buy properties a lot quicker uh, when we were working together than we could do when we were trying to do it by ourselves. Just having someone there to bounce ideas off and um, answer questions or queries and just clarify issues and things that you might have concerns with. Um, so I guess we we were pretty much our own little mini mastermind group at that point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes total sense. So then you came together to form Scott Baker Properties, and what? So what was the first deal that you did together in your company? The first deal, um, I always forget which way round they came because we did a couple of really quick succession. Yeah, and um, I think it was Sincothra no. Street. <laughs> <laughs> I said the other one. <laughs> Um, it, it was one of two. It was one of two. <laughs> um, so, I, I, yeah, I think it was the Cuthbert Street, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So this property, um, we found it. This was just through an agent, wasn't it? Was just through an agent. Yes. On the market for a little while, and uh, it was a little fifty grand property um, up in Lancashire, um, whereby we just managed to get a property for about forty-five thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. And did some more work to it, and then rented it out to a family. So it was a, a very little kind of a tiddler style property uh, with that without that much kind of financial risk, without that much tenant risk. Uh, that we thought, well, let's try one of those. Um, spent about seven grand, seven eight grand on it, um, and then valued up about seventy. So um, it was a nice little cash flow yeah. you know, generator. Makes about about two hundred fifty quid a month profit. Um, even to this day, still in the portfolio. In fact, nothing that we've bought, apart from one thing, uh, we uh, we sold. Yeah. So we've kept everything because it's our, our strategy is is purely income. You know that, that may change in the future, but for now, it's uh, we're looking for income generating assets. Um, tell you a bit more, I suppose, as, as we go through uh, the interview. But that first one, little bite of that, you know, a few of those, and actually that can really start to make a difference. Yeah. And then, you know, when people start in property, and I guess this is kind of looking back before this property you did together, it's like, mm-hmm. where do I start? You got essay, you got rent to rent, rent to essay, you got HMOs, land. There's so many things you can do. What yeah. sort of, I guess, 
what pointed you to buying by to let us start um i guess for us we both none neither of us had any experience um in property before we started the training courses um and we we started off with a little the buy to lets because they're relatively cheap to pick up um our main focus was for uh income generation um and the, although two or three hundred pounds a month is not going to break the bank uh, it's still two or three hundred pounds a month for each individual property that you have um so it, we were main, just solely focusing on the income um and as, as well as that it was like it was we were just learning the process as we went along whether you're buying um, a 22 or doing a 22 bedroom hmo or a little baby buy to let the process is not that different so you still have to work with your solicitors and your brokers and uh, lenders and everything that goes with it. So learning the learning process uh, on the little cheaper ones um, is a much less uh, uh, um, less risky uh, way of doing it, basically. I'll also just add, add to that, actually. Um, I think I said it just before, but we generally look for income projects. Uh, now, because we are investors, we want to be investing in property you want to be purchasing them uh, and looking for ongoing income because uh you know there's quite a lot of like rent to rent strategies out there you know land sourcing deal sourcing um, and that can be you know really great you know short term money it's lumpy money uh, the rent to rent model uh, again is a really good one it's a business model and we made a very active decision early mm-hmm. on um, that we were going to buy uh, or at least get options over everything that we agree so that it's so, so we're not creating a business um, around you know renting well, we're rent to rent. We yeah. want to own or have the option to own everything uh, moving forwards. Yes, I think it's it's just been very clear from the from day one what your strategy is um, and what why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. What what what's the end goal? Um, and once you once you've got that clear in your mind, then whichever strategy strategy you do choose, as long as it works for you and gets you towards your main goal, um, then just go with it yeah no i think it's solid advice and you know for some people buying buy to let's at 250 a month is not going to work they want to quit their job you know this exactly. year and, and yeah. they need to kind of do something to get out of it absolutely so you start off with that with that buy to let so now we're in may 2019 what does your portfolio as a company look like and consist of well it's mainly hmos now so we started off with those little buy to lets to bring in a little bit of cash flow uh, but we knew very quickly, as as Noel said, we had a very clear vision that we wanted to you know, get to the HMO uh, level of investing uh, really quickly. And um, in fact, it was probably our second deal um, that we did uh, was was an HMO. It was a property that was purchased as a buy to let, which we then had the opportunity to convert it to an HMO, and then it's been HMO ever since that. Um, and up to today, over the last three years, um, built up about 83 rental units. Um, so across the HMO portfolio, and that uh, is, is enable, enables us to be able to do you know, a lot more with our time, uh, which is great, but also enables us to grow the business beyond that. So the types of deals we do now are, are larger, generally they're larger HMOs, whether that's seven, eight beds, or our current one at the moment, which is um, close to being completed, uh, is the 22-bed HMO that Niall alluded to. So uh, yeah, we, we like taking commercial buildings and, and turning them into like HMO communities. Wow. And so that's 83 rental units over the past, how many years did you say? 
83 over three years. Over three years. And when you say units, are you counting a unit as a room or as the whole property? The room. So how many properties is that across? Quite a good question. Um, 14, 15? 15, 16. I've lost count. Uh, We we generally uh, count the tenancies because if you think about it, if we've got 22 tenancies in one room, that's one property. You know, just for us to say, oh, we've got one property, somebody might go, oh, you've only got one property. But actually, we've got 22 units in that one building. So we, we do break it down to the number of tenancies that we have because that way we can equate it to a cash flow amount and a profit amount. And this business is all about profitability at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And then, so you went into BiteAlert into HMOs. How did you pick an area for HMOs because a lot of people who are new say oh how do I know there's going to be demand get the right tenants and my rooms are going to be full how did you ensure that you could grow to 83 rental units and you wouldn't have those problems well we yeah so that, that, that's a very common um, question I guess and we, we do see it a lot of, on social media and people querying it um, for us it's quite straightforward and we built up a quite a a good model or a good system over the past few years, and we, which we've dubbed our tenant first model. Um, so we're we're looking at um, areas where there's a lot of uh, employment. Uh, we're looking for areas where people want to live, basically. Where where are the commuters living? Um, and picking areas that people can travel to for work. They've got easy access to uh, to local amenities. Most of our um, tenants in the HMOs that we've got are generally. Uh, between early to mid 20s some of them go into their early 30s but generally between 25 to 35 i would say is probably yeah, an average yeah um so it's it's getting properties in areas where these where the young millennials if you like where they where they work where they where they socialize where they where they want to be so areas like i say that have uh, employment um transport links uh, and lots of amenities Mm. And then what area, what part of the UK do you focus on and invest in? So we started off in the northwest. So uh, Lancashire and Greater Manchester, uh, Cheshire, that kind of area. So um, we built up a portfolio uh, in that area of HMOs and got to a point where it's like, well, we're quite happy with with this. Um, One of the properties in that portfolio was featured in the YPN in February, uh, the one in the centre of Warrington. And we kind of got to a point where, well, we if we add keep adding rooms, we're going to be our own competition. So uh, we picked that area, worked really well for us, and then thought, let's go and try and you know, put a pin in, in the map again and and do the same research and work out where it's going to work you know, for the for the future. So um, we picked another couple of areas, um, one in the northeast, uh, one in the Midlands, and started buying a few properties in those areas. And you know, one worked, so we did another one and another one. And um, so we're in the northwest, northeast, the Midlands, and now, as of 2019, uh, we are now buying along the south coast um, as well. So we're based down in Brighton, and so we purchase properties from Brighton, Eastbourne, through to Portsmouth, Southampton, about that kind of neck of the woods. So um, we're, we're, we're dotted around a, a little bit. Uh, oh, and there's some in Scotland as well. I that is. <laughs> really dotted around there. Okay, so then how, I mean, were you travelling up to... The northeast and northwest, like both of you from Brighton, every every week every, when you when you were buying these. 
Um, well, it was a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest, because um, when we started initially, um, Matt was loving living up um, in and the, loving it and loving it <laughs> <laughs> in and around the Manchester area. So it was uh, it was a, a sensible place for us to to start investing. Um, once once we had built up uh, a good uh, team of people around us, people that we can rely rely on, uh, such as builders. Uh, maintenance people, uh, management agents, etc. Once we had those in place, um, it took a lot of the trips up and down the motorway out of it for us. Um, so yes, initially we were—I was living in London and investing in um, in Lancashire. Um, so I had lots of trips up and down the motorway to start. Uh, but now that we're established and in the area for a couple of years, we have very few trips to make because we've got people that we can rely on in, in each individual area. In fact, when we're looking at deals now um, in those areas, because we, we don't buy as many as we did, um, you know, far away. But, we, you know, for example, we have got uh, one going through at the moment and two going through refurbishments, um, all in the northwest still. And uh, I've only visited the property, the one we're buying once. Uh, you, Niall, hasn't seen it. <laughs> um, but um, we've got people on the, the ground, the project manager who's been probably three or four times, yeah. uh, and builders have already been around. So it, it's about having the people and the team that the that, that you know and that you trust, and that doesn't happen overnight. But when doesn't. you've got it, you grab hold of them and keep, yes. them, keep them close. Any, anyone starting off, I wouldn't recommend buying anything or doing anything or trusting other, anyone else's point of view or opinion until you've seen it yourself. Um, but like I say, once, once you've got those people in place, it saves you a lot of time and hassle. Yeah. yeah. And for people who are you know, doing something similar to what you used to do, which is traveling that long distance, but they're mm. in the process of building that team, are there any tips for how they can build these relationships maybe quicker or better? Um, I think consistency, I would say, is probably one of the most important things. Um, is it, People uh, like people. So if they see you regularly um, and you're popping into the estate agents or you're coming up and speaking to the builders or whatever it may be um, once a month or once every six to eight weeks, um, then you become a familiar face uh, in that area. Um, I think it's also quite a good idea to do networking and go to networking events in the area that you're investing in. So you get to speak to, to meet, to sit down with the uh, local people, basically. Um, if, for example, one, if you're traveling from London up to, up to the, the Northwest and people will want to know who the investor is and there's an element of trust in that as well. And then, you know, to grow this many rental units over three years is, is no easy task. So, you know, <laughs> if, if people want to, achieve the same or achieve more i mean for you what was the biggest challenge in growing a hmo portfolio like this i think it was it, it was in learning how to build these teams mm. it was being able to spot when something was working and when something wasn't because it's not been all roses um, i'm sure you you know it being anyone who's in property will tell you that you know the problems that you have uh, can be quite stressful at times yeah and the bigger the projects the bigger the problems uh, and actually the, the biggest learning that we can over the last three or four years is actually how to manage ourselves rather than the other people as well because you've got to be able to manage your emotions manage your stress levels so that you, know, you can effectively manage other people mm-hmm. so when we are dealing with builders, dealing with project managers or agents, you know, you've got to be on your game. Uh, so not being phased 
by problems um, and looking for solutions is probably, I think, one of the main things that we definitely learned. Yeah. Mm, okay. And then, you know, are you both full-time property now? Yes. And how long did it take you to go from working in a job and doing property to then just being full-time property? Um, for me, I, 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 I give up the day job um, in January of 2018. Um, so was just, that a couple of years? Just over, just over two years, roughly. Um, and for me, um, so we both started at a similar time. I was a little bit before <clears> then. <throat> um, I had a music school business, so I had a a little bit of other income coming in. So I just probably stopped after about eighteen months of starting. So yeah, within within two years, I'd say, uh, and and that's uh, I think quite realistic for someone starting in property if they're doing the right things with the right knowledge. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. a, it's a it's a common thing. Uh, people assume that um, it's it's going to be a difficult, or you won't be, you can't invest in property and have a full time job at the same time because you, it's difficult to manage the time. But and I agree, it is very difficult. Um, but it's just about prioritizing your time and working smart, not hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but and consistent and consistent, as you were saying earlier. Yeah, so we worked worked two jobs quite hard for two years. To not have to be able to not have to work hard <laughs> thereafter. <laughs> well, exactly. It is only two years. I mean, well, I say only, but it, you know, compared to having to do that for the rest of your life until you exactly. retire, yeah, it, two years is always going to beat that. And look, you know, you've done it in two. Some people do it in one. Some people do it in four. Some people do it in. It's everyone's circumstance, right? But I think you're right in saying it's a realistic way to look at it in terms of when you're buying things. Conveyancing itself per property can take too long, so. You know, when you kind of put those factors in, it, it it kind of becomes realistic. And then, so to grow these many properties, you need cash for refurbs, for buying it, for costs, for everything. How have you funded these these HMOs? So uh, we started off. So just to kind of backtrack before the HMOs, uh, my very first deal, uh, I had a bit of help from my mum. So started off with a little bit of family money uh, from her pension. So you did a bit of uh, pension release and um, got the first one going there. So we built up a little bit of equity. And uh, from that point on, it was uh, generally it's an investor finance. So we work a lot with angel investors, with um, other business owners. Small business owners uh, are actually you know, a kind of a large part of our uh, investor pool. So uh, we do a, generally you know, people you know, lend money uh, and we do the deal and then we finance them uh, and pay them back. Okay. And then, you know, for people who are new in property and even those who aren't, you know, people who might have a few properties who've done it the uh, old school way, let's put it, where, you know, use your own money, yeah. wait a couple, you know, however many years, save up again, leave your money in. You know, this whole new model of, well, newer model of borrowing money and being able to buy a lot more in a shorter period of time. Yeah. You know, a lot of new people say, okay, that's great, but where do we find investors from? So what would you say to that? Well, there, it, it, it takes time to build up um, an investor pool and credibility as an, as an investor yourself. Um, but they are out there. <laughs> where do you find them? Um, you find them by, by going out and networking, speaking to people, um, telling everyone what you're doing, um, being visual on social media, um, and having a clear to find strategy and a business plan that you can hand to any potential investor for them to see and to prove 
your your worthiness as an investor. And actually, I think it's really important to have a vision, have a you know, a longer term goal. So obviously, you have that particular project plan, but you know, Scott Baker Properties doesn't just do one property at a time. We're actually uh, from 2019, uh, our vision is is what we call Project 96. It's to add another 96 uh, rental units to our property, so that's on top of the 83. Um, so we're already well on the way into that with having about four deals uh, agreed. So, um, you know, it's about going out and selling the the wider vision of what you're doing. So mm-hmm. even if you're starting out with just the one, you know, have the vision of where you want to go. Have that, you know, even that two year goal, that five year goal. Of what you're looking to build because people will buy into you invest into you not into the deal i think that's a really important thing to remember you know our best investors people that give us the most money generally invest off the back of one piece of paper and going out for a cup of coffee or dinner <laughs> it's it's crazy to hear that because you know you know you i guess people in unit property hear this a lot and then until it actually happens to you, you don't really believe it. You're kind of like, oh, That's yeah, very of course. True. Yeah, <laughs> but it's 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 like anything, really. It's it is a lot to do with your own belief and mm. your own your own mindset. Um, but exactly like you say, until you've actually done it, then you don't believe it actually mm-hmm. can happen. And mm. but once you've done it, you can do it again and again yeah. and again. And the more you've done it, the more credible, more credibility you you build up. Um, and as well as that, the more people that are investing with you, people talk to people. So yeah. you, you build up uh, a nice network of your own investment investors. Mm. And so how much do you think you've raised in like angel or JV finance over the past few years? Um, so probably, so I think so over, over four years, kind of over a million um over four years so probably about like 1.2 million that's been in and then um or, or either in deals or being paid back etc etc so uh yeah wow and i guess something that people don't really talk about is you know when you're borrowing someone else's hard-earned money there's a bit of pressure on you or there's a lot of pressure on you to deliver correctly and, and return their money do you do you feel that stress because a million pounds is a lot or do you not feel it do you just know look Figures work, deal works, we're good. Yeah, it's, I think it's, um, there isn't, yes, of course, in, in, in any deal that you do, um, there is always an element of stress. There's always something that can go wrong. Um, and there will always be something that will crop up on every deal that you were never expecting in the first place, <laughs> just to surprise you. But I think it's uh, it comes back down to your due diligence and the research that you do before you actually purchase the deal in the first place. Um, if you've done your homework well, and you've got your investment pack that your investor can look over, that they can confirm everything that you've confirmed. Um, then, in theory, everything should be should be fine. But it's it's just keeping an open relationship and keeping an open dialogue with with the investors. And if something does go wrong, worst, worst case scenario, exactly, tell them. Don't keep them in the dark. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then, so it'd be really interesting maybe to delve into some of your particular deals so people can understand, you know, how much you're buying things for, the refurb, and, and you know, how much money you're leaving in. So, I don't know, would you talk us through maybe one or two of your HMOs that you've done that were maybe really interesting or really difficult or? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, one of the ones that I think might be good to, to focus on is, is probably my favorite deal um, to date, which is. Um, called insurance house 
uh, it is up in in Warrington, and it was an office conversion to uh, to Resi. So um, I absolutely love doing office to Resi. You know, we were on our uh, third one of these, um, and in in two years, and and I just but basically I don't like paying unnecessary stamp duty. <laughs> so that was that was the first reason for wanting to go into them because we pay commercial stamp duty. Um, so he purchased the property for £147,000, uh, which uh, had to pay no stamp duty on it. So uh, where if you buy it as a house, you've got the 3% plus um, the 2% between 125 and 147. So it adds up. And in your, when you're holding these properties, this is money that you can't get back. So it's money that has to go into the deal. So it means that more deals are going to work. So... Uh, this particular property was an office. It had been on the market for a little while. And in fact, I was the the third person that saw it. And uh, it was, I say a third person. I was the third person that actually had an offer agreed because two uh, investors previous to this had put in, you know, put in offers and then it had all fallen out of bed twice beforehand. It's an interesting stat that more than 50% of uh, commercial sales will fall through. So your commercial sale is is uh, more likely to fall out of bed than it is to go through. Uh, so always follow up. I'd say the same for residential property, but on the commercial side, always follow up. Just because something says it's sold subject to contract doesn't mean it's sold. So this property came back to us, and um, so we managed to buy it, and then we just completed on it. Um, so we just performed. Uh, bought for one four seven. Uh, the plan with this uh, had permitted development to convert it into residential. So we put the prior notification in to get the uh, office converted into two dwellings, which was a house and a flat. Because what we really wanted to do was to create a large HMO and a one bedroom flat as well. Um, so nine units overall. Uh, and that was that was really good. We spent just over a quarter of a million pounds on it to create that. And there were a few challenges within that. But um it was, it's a great property now, large rooms, ensuite rooms, really huge kitchen diner. Uh, and we actually get above, well, well above market rent for, for these rooms. Mm. And have you refinanced it at the end? Yes, so it was refinanced. It was bought for 147, refinanced at 483,000. Okay, so you're leaving was, a little bit of money in there? Or? Yeah, yeah, there's leaving some money in, but it returns really well. Um, and actually the valuer was happy to value it higher um, just was struggling to find enough comparables at a higher rate. So we know that there's still scope to increase the value of this um, in time. So that was refinanced, I think, last year now. Uh, so yeah, we, we are constantly reviewing um, properties, constantly looking to you know maximise the value of them, uh, you know, and maximise the mortgages on them because that's when you can maximise your return, maximise your um, cash flow across your entire portfolio. Yeah, and you said you're getting above market rents for that, which is a, you know what we all want really. And so you said one, you know, is very spacious. But what other factors have you put into this HMO that maybe you put across all of yours that can give people above market rents? Well, I think the first one is location. So this one is right next to the station. So I think it's really key to you know, to get the higher rents because we've got other properties in the area where we don't have the same rents and they're more like a 10 minute walk to the station. So in this particular property, we get on average 550 per room, uh, but the average of the area is 450. So actually it's a huge wow. difference. 
And, and we know this because we get 450 for a room 10 minutes down the road, but 550 for these ones. So, you know, it's, uh, and the, the, the other houses still work really well, but that was the first and second HMOs that we did. So I wouldn't do it in the same way again. But to increase the, the rent, I, I think we talked about room sizes. I think it's really important to go as large as you can on suites wherever possible. In fact, in this area, if, um, if it's not got an ensuite, it's going to struggle to rent anyway near um, you know, the 550 mark. But I think it's really important to keep your properties in a good condition. I think it's really important to design them to fit what the ideal tenant wants. And as Niall mentioned earlier, if you've done your research about what the tenant wants beforehand, then you, you'll have no problem filling them. Uh, so just find the demand and then meet the demand and we now have an interior person who works on all of our properties moving forwards to make sure that they're not the same as the one next door ah and and do you find that when you put these these rooms up these HMOs up for you know to be let that you are oversubscribed or do you find it takes a few weeks to kind of get them full um that doesn't no they, they basically fill pretty much straight away like i think they with these kind of what we call next level HMOs where we have you know, design them for the tenant where we've we've had got gone the extra mile um maybe a couple of days turnover we get a month or two months notice from the tenants depending on you know what, what their plans are um, so there's plenty of time to re-advertise it and it's a lot easier to to fill one room out of nine than it is to fill nine rooms out of nine so yeah just to, to turn them over is quite easy and you mentioned next level hmos what does that mean well, it's, it's basically the, what's, what we're mainly focusing on at the moment. So at Next Level HMO is, number one, it's a HMO that stands out above everything else in the area. So if you if we mentioned earlier, or you asked a question earlier about areas that may have saturation um, and you know where, where do you find good areas to invest in HMOs? Well, if you've, we found that if you've got a really good product, um, then it'll rent. Uh, but if you've done all your due diligence and research at the beginning. Um, so a next level HMO is basically uh, very well presented properties, um, but, they're, they're, but they're bigger than your standard um, four or five bed HMO. These are seven, eight, nine and above. For example, we're doing one at the moment in Stockport, which is 22 beds. Um, so we're creating communities and co-living spaces as well as just a home. Mm, okay. And then this 22 bedder, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. What are you buying it for? What's the refurb cost? What's it going to look like? <laughs> okay, so the 22 better. So purchased for 370 and uh, it's we're still going through the works, but we still hit to go to you know, about half a million to uh, of money to spend on it. So it's a proper conversion to to flats and and rooms. So uh, this particular property uh, we know it's worth 1.1 already but um, should value up at over 1.2 million uh, with the, the the final rent that we, we prove the rent so uh, we've got a really great um, agent that we work with in the area who, who goes out and and fills these rooms um, quickly um, and we market them ourselves as well so we have our own um, in-house marketing team that um, put their own stamp we put our own stamp on these properties you know, to make them next level HMO anyway. So you said you already know it's worth about 1.1. How do you already know that? Um, a valuer has valued it already at that. 
wow i mean that is a, a nice bit of profit there especially for like a hmo i think when we talk those levels of profit profit most people wouldn't necessarily associate it with a hmo so when we say next level in this one is it going to be the best hmo in the area it's going to be unique put it that way um there's nothing like it in the area I think it's probably Stockport's first co-living space that's been designed in this way. There are quite a lot of four-bed, five-bed, six-bed HMOs in the area, and some really nice ones. Um, but what we're looking to do is to create a bit more of a, a community within the building, and um, you know, by adding you know, value, by giving um, you know, giving a little bit more to the tenant as well. So, um, you know, we, we're working with local businesses to be able to give. Um, discounts on services we you know we, we design each room um, to be a specific to, to hit a specific um demographic so within the building we've got three different tiers of room as well so it's not just creating 22 of the same thing i think that's really important so that you create choice and you create different price points so uh within that building yes it will be unique to stockport and then, you know, a lot of, not a lot, but some naysayers of HMOs and, and just general you know, negative people say, oh, uh, HMOs are um, are saturated. Oh, you know, if I do a HMO now, in 10 years, who knows if it's still going to be a market. Now, you're obviously putting a big investment in, but I mean, you're making a lot out of it. But mm-hmm. how do you see, you know, a 22 bed sort of lasting in the long term? Is, is the co-living thing, is that what's going to make it stand out and last longer? Because it's not just a HMO or... I think look at the the market. Look at the demand for for uh, accommodation in the UK. Uh, co living is a is a growing market. Um, HMOs and co living, I think, are two slightly different things. You know, your four bed, five bed, six bed HMOs, I think, work really well in certain places, but it's a different product to have a, a larger community based living. That's a different thing. So I think there's room for both. Uh, but, but if you look at, for example, where stu- if you look at the student market, we've not mentioned, we're not into the student market at all, but it's a market that, that we've seen where larger organizations have come in and built purpose-built student accommodation. And what it's done is it's attracted students to it uh, because of its, uh, its um, convenience, because of the extra benefits they get by living in that versus living in a a four bed, five bed house. Uh, and even though some um, tenants like to live in small groups, you can still create that within a larger community building. So that's what we aim to do. Yeah. Okay. I love that. I love that vision. And last question on this deal, how much rent will that be bringing in a month or a year? Okay. So we originally did numbers based on getting between five to five to six hundred pounds per month across the three different price points but we've actually seen rents going up above the 600 mark for really good quality stuff so uh we've got we're hopeful got our fingers crossed that um our numbers are still on the conservative side so um yeah we we should be making at least a twelve thousand pounds a month uh, gross um, which should come down to around about four thousand a month net profit after costs nice and it sounds like you you know if you refinance it you're, you're going to get all your money back out and then some am i right uh it, it's there or thereabouts 
um, it, to be seen. Uh, obviously, we've got the last uh, the last wave of of um, works to be done, and then the refinance, as you said, refinances and conveyancing can take a long time. So, you know, I I have been in a refinance for six months and one. So, um, wow. that that in itself can you know, can increase the amount of cost within the, in the project. Even though hopefully the, the the property would start to bring in some income um, at some point. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, uh, yeah, you should pull out most, most of the money um, to, to a point whereby if there's, you know, um, say 40 grand left in and I'm making four grand a month profit, I'll quite <laughs> happily forego some of that yeah. for, the first, for the first year um, whilst I just pay back an investor or we work with a longer term investor to, you know, who's happy to you know, take a small return on their money um, and then we repay them as I said, gradually over, over three or four years. Mm. And then, you know, one question I have, which I think is something that until you've done it again, you don't necessarily understand it is, so you have a deal, you've got an angel investor in a, you know, X percent a year, and you've had to leave some money in the deal because, you know, some, you know, a lot of the time you have to, mm-hmm. that investor still owed X amount that they've, you've had to leave in the deal of theirs. How do you pay them back fully with the interest when you're leaving money in some deals? That's a general question, I guess, as well. Yeah, well, I guess um, it really depends because not not all investors will want their money back at the end of the project. So Matt alluded to it a little bit earlier on, but a lot of our investors invest in Scott Baker properties as the business rather than investing in a specific property project that's ongoing at that time. Um, so if, if we have got longer term investors, when we refinance, for example, this 22 bed that's in Stockport, when we refinance that one, um, any of the angel investors that are on board, um, if there is money left in, then their money will be left in that deal until such point as we repay them or they want the money back. Um, but most of the money will be recycled into the next projects. Mm-hmm. I see. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And I think that's really I interesting. I think it's about developing long-term relationships with angel investors. You know, we've had, um, it was about at least, two or three of our investors um, since we started four years ago and they're still in the business uh, and one of them we've just uh, re-agreed another year um, and it's when you build those relationships that actually you can just recycle that money through your deals and as long as you're doing good deals and you know our next level HMO strategy is to hit at least a 50% return after refinance so that um, the servicing and the paying back of these these investors is straightforward mm-hmm. you know when you're doing lesser deals i find it harder to do with the with the smaller properties if you're doing a five bed hmo um, and you've got one room empty you're probably not making very much money um a six bed hmo you've got a little bit more leeway with that sixth room um but actually when you go seven eight nine beds that those last three or four rooms is pretty much pure profit because your costs don't go up at the same rate as your rent so you get economy of scale Mm. that's that's very smart i think thinking about the investment as a business makes a difference because i i guess we're i guess naturally we kind of do it deal by deal but -hmm. actually if they invest in you and you as a business and you pay them interest every year the hopefully they're going to want to keep that money in with you see the long-term vision and you can just recycle it and not worry about that so i think that's a golden nugget of information for people listening because it kind of just made me make some notes here and think actually maybe i need to present myself and the things and the deals i'm sort of presenting differently so that's 
that's really smart. And again, about the point about size of HMOs, again, that is a really, really important point. And I guess what you know, some people may say back to that is, all right, when we get to seven, eight, nine beds, do you find that tenants are less interested because you're kind of living with more people and it's less homely? Or do you find they don't care? They want a good quality room, ensuite, done. Um I guess the, the tenants, the, the, the larger, the next level HMOs are, they're not, they're not like a five bed HMO. They're a lot different because number one, like you say, they've got large, uh, very large bedrooms where they, they, that they have with their own suites, but they've also got large communal spaces for them to, to socialize in. They've got large kitchens that they can cook in. Um, so there's a lot of space within these properties that they can um, meet congregate with and mix with the other tenants or if they want to be by themselves if they don't want to mix with anyone they've got a nice big bedroom that they can they, they can chill out in yeah they're um they're called living bedrooms um that's a term um, which means you know those of you who do hmos uh, will know that if you hit a certain size you then don't need to provide as much communal facilities because um, it, the council will deem it to be a living bedroom so we always make sure that our rooms are living bedrooms and um, so that you know, the tenant can live in the room or can choose to share the space. And I think if you say to someone, oh, you're going to be sharing with eight other people, most people will go, no, I don't think so. But actually, it's how it's presented to them. So uh, it's all about the communication uh, between the agent or yourself and, and the tenant it's about getting people to the property. When people go to these properties, uh, then they generally get sold really easily. Mm. Um, so it's just about the presentation, the marketing of the building, of the property, of the room, and of the lifestyle. And once yeah. you do that, then it's relatively straightforward to then get them to sign the dotted line and, and take the room pretty much um, there and then, which is what we what we aim to do. Mm. Okay, now that, that makes total sense. And, you know, so if we look at your portfolio as a whole so 82 rental units obviously you're adding a lot more 96 you said to that this year alone at the moment what does that profit you a month in terms of cash flow um it is roughly so it turns over 40 just about forty thousand pounds gross so it's because they're all in different slightly different um entities so probably about twenty thousand pounds okay and then, and then again, question stemming from that. So that's obviously a good amount, and everyone wants the passive income piece. How passive is passive in your portfolio? Um, well, we don't manage um, any of the properties that we've and that we've got currently rented out. Um, we we've got uh, management agents that look after all the day to day running of the properties, so we don't have to worry about it. Um, when it comes down to an actual uh, development or a project that we're working on, we put project manager on site, an independent project manager that we uh, have a relationship with, and they manage the build, they manage the project from start to finish. Um, so our involvement in in the property side of it, in the business in general, is finding and funding the deals. Um, and once we've done that, um, we've got our, our team takes over basically. Um, so we've got very little involvement in that side of it. Um, the, we, we, we started doing this mainly for, 
uh, for cash flow was to be able to put number one was to get out of the day job. Um, and you hear people talking about financial freedom and financial uh, security um, in all in all terms with, with property. For me, it was it was yes, and it wanted financial freedom because I love to travel. Um, so if if I were trying to manage eighty three rental units, then I think I'd probably be working a hell of a lot harder than I ever was in my day job. <laughs> Uh, so we we got teams to to do that for us. So I, I've just come back from a, a trip to South Africa, um, and everything just carried on as normal when I wasn't here. Yeah, just to add to that, I suppose there is some management, and that's it's the management of the people mm-hmm. which is the key role. And essentially, you're becoming the CEO of your own business. Inal and I are essentially co-CEOs of um, the, yeah, these properties, and you cannot. <laughs> physically do that in the amount of deals by yourself. So managing the people, as I think comes back to when we very started the interview, and we talked about how you know, the team, the person on the ground is the most important person, and it's your relationship with them which will make or break it. Because if your relationship with that person breaks down, then if they are eyes and ears, then you're a little bit scuppered because then all of a sudden you've got to get the car back out and go back up the, get back up the motorway. So um, yeah, managing the managers, and that probably takes I just think per property, you know, actually the, the property isn't the thing which takes out the most time, is no, it, these no. days? And finding these the people, the, the, the teams to work with, doesn't again, it doesn't happen overnight. You're not going to walk into the first uh, management agency in your investment area and find your ideal person straight away. Maybe you will, but it's unlikely. I think we're on agent number four in one of the areas. Yeah. And funnily enough, you said that my next question was, how do you decide which lettings agent to use? Are there, you know, from your experiences of going through four of them, you know, any tips for people to how to vet them? Well, I think it's, yeah, well, um, a lot of the agencies we tried initially was just a trial and error process when we were starting out. Um, Anybody that's, what I would suggest now is uh, recommendations is from other landlords other people that are investing in the area and using these people um is generally quite a good way to start so that comes back down to networking um and meeting people in the area that you're investing in um but it's 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 never um it's never a sure cert way of doing it there the person people's personalities differ so not everyone is going to get along with the same management agents as we're getting along with um, so it's a trial and error for a lot of it, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's fair enough. And last question before we go into the quick fire round. Is there a resource, platform, app, bit of technology that you just can't live without? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, well, I guess for us, um, communicating with each other, even when I'm, for example, if one of us is away, um, WhatsApp is actually a, a, a really useful tool to, to, that we use. And actually, um, just thinking about a, a resource, we uh, the, the big thing that's made the biggest difference to us over the last four years is being part of mastermind groups. Mm-hmm. So actually mastermind with other people who are ahead of us in our journey. So um, actually WhatsApp kind of <laughs> is used in that environment as well, where we're, you know, if we have an issue with what we're doing, WhatsApp with the, the mastermind groups that yeah. we're involved with um, and our coaches and mentors um, that, that we can go to, go to them. 
Mm. Okay, solid. So now we're in the quickfire round. So short, snappy answers. Now, first one is, what are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property? Oh, three biggest mistakes. Um, putting too much trust in um, building team. Um, not checking um, bank details before making a payment to a fraudulent account. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, move along swiftly from that one. <laughs> we, re- we recovered the money. Yeah, we recovered. Good. <laughs> um, and uh, re- again, I guess it comes back down to relying on um, relying too much and not managing uh, management agents. So just like Matt had mentioned before, so we we we're, we don't manage the properties ourselves but we still need to manage the agents that are managing them. So keeping in contact with them and making sure that they're doing what they should be doing. Um, yeah, so I think that was a big yeah. learning curve for us. Okay, that makes sense. And then what are your top three tips for people who are new in property? Okay, tip number one would be to get educated, go and learn something about it. Because if you're, you know, you're learning to drive a car, yeah, you, you go out and you have lessons, don't you? And then you pass a test before you let loose on the road. So same thing in property. If you're setting up your own business, if you've never done it before, you are not just going to go out and buy something for for X amount and hope it's going to be worth Y amount um, without having done some research and actually asking someone or checking with someone it's the right thing to do. You've done it successfully before. So number one would be educated. Number two would be network. Get around other, other people that are doing the same thing. Um so whether that's going to property networking events, uh, whether it's going to business networking events, whether it's um, joining a mastermind group, um, all that kind of stuff is really important, uh, especially when you're looking to raise finance or find deals because that's where the people are going to be. Tip number three um, would be work on yourself because if you don't work on yourself, then that, that you're going to be the first, your first hurdle. You're going to be the person that holds you back. So personal development, I think, is really, really key. Um, as, as we said earlier in this interview, it, it's actually the learnings about ourselves, which has been the biggest ones and the most important ones, you know, having to, to not sweat the small stuff, which is, <laughs> is, is a good reference as well. Um, yeah, so those are probably the top three, educate, Solid. network, work on yourself. Yeah, I love that. Nothing, nothing to do with property there at all. But <laughs> I, just, uh, it, I think if you don't do those three things, you're going to fun, be fundamentally flawed. Yeah. Okay, cool. I like it. And then lastly, what are your top three goals for the future? This can be in your business, in your in fitness, in mindset, anything at all. Um, yeah, so the top three is Project 96. Uh, so that's adding the 96 additional uh, units to our existing portfolio. Um, HMO Platform. Uh, which is our mastermind group. So we're also set up a mastermind group um, where we're helping other um, landlords get their property portfolios to the next level. So next level HMOs are uh, predominantly focusing on. We also train people in, in the tools and techniques about that as well. And goal number three, I think is to, um, actually we'll be talking about this quite a bit, it's probably to uh, make sure that we, have time for ourselves mm-hmm. so to keep booking the holidays in you know, whenever we have a meeting about diaries and um, we're also discussing when are we both next going on holiday so we both just agreed that Niall's going to go to America with his mum nice. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know it yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and um, yeah, and I'm looking at you know taking some time off next year to do a bit more extended travelling. I haven't told Nile yet, yeah. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we are we are looking at ways to be able to be able to maintain our business but have the lifestyle that we want. So um, the the first two goals help with the third goal because mm-hmm. if we've got Project ninety six set up. So we, all of that's, you know, we're working with investors in order to do that, uh, and we're working with our teams in three different areas in order to do that. The HMO platform, again, once we've got um, the the mastermind, we've got one mastermind group which is going really well at the moment. We're adding uh, people to a second one at the moment. So um, once that's up and running, that enables us to be able to, you know, help other people, and it keeps us accountable to Project Ninety Six as well. Because if people are coming to us and learning about what we do, mm-hmm. then we need to be out there actively doing the do so that people can see that we're you know practicing what we preach i think it's really important to be able to do that and then when we can do that that enables us to be able to say well let's take a couple of weeks off here let's take a month off there and um, because we know that the systems are in place to manage the entirety of our business mm-hmm. i love that what i'll do is i'll put your contact details in the show notes and in, on the podcast app as well so if anyone wants to get in touch with you to speak about the mastermind or, or anything at all they can yep. get straight to you and it will be nice and efficient. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. There's definitely been some nuggets. I've made some my own notes here as well. Um, so <laughs> I'm really looking forward to getting this out there. And I think people are going to learn a lot from this and hopefully people will be in contact with you as well. Awesome. Yes. Thank you for having us. It's been, uh, it's been very nice. Very interesting. Yeah. Thanks. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.